this is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. Welcome back to True Consequences. I'm your host, Eric Carter-Landin. Today we're talking about the New Mexico prison riot, one of the worst riots in the history of the United States. I also have a special guest on my show today. Her name is Lydia Wolberg, and I've known her for over 30 years. Lydia's been a really good friend of mine, and I'm glad that she was able to join me and tell the story of the New Mexico prison riot. A couple housekeeping things just before we get into the episode. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at True Consequences Pod. And on Twitter, at TrueConsPod. True Consequences is fully listener-supported. If you'd like to support this one-man show, please go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. And there are donation levels as low as $1 per month. I'd like to welcome all of our new listeners as well to the show. Thanks so much for listening. So I'd like to give a shout-out to our latest patron, Detroit Tigers Minor League Tracker. Thank you for being a Zia supporter. I appreciate you. Okay, I think... That's all we have. So this is going to be a little bit different from some of my other episodes that I've done. I'm actually really excited about today. I've been waiting for today for a few months. Um, I have a special guest with me here who is somebody that I've known for, I would say, probably 30 years now. Maybe mm-hmm. close to 30 years. Mm-hmm. That gives away our age and makes us seem really old. Speak <laughs> <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> but... Uh, my friend Lydia Wahlberg is here with me, and she's one of my closest friends that I've known for most of my life. And when she found out I was doing this podcast, we talked about possibly maybe doing an episode together. Lydia recommended doing the New Mexico prison riot from 1980, which was something that I wasn't super excited to talk about because it's really gruesome and really grisly. I just, I'm glad that you're talking about it, and I'm glad that I get to listen and maybe chime in a little bit, but... Definitely excited to have you here. So welcome. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for letting me do the dirty work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know me well enough to know that I I can always be counted on to pass that off to somebody else. (laughs) I rid myself. Um, So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about the resources that we use to research the subject matter. So we looked at the report of the Attorney General published in 1980 after the riot, and that was done by the New Mexico Attorney General and his office. And that Attorney General at the time was Jeff Bingaman, who mm-hmm. later became a state senator for New Mexico. I also looked at an article called Public Policy and Mental Illnesses, Jimmy Carter's Presidential Commission on Mental Health by Gerald Grobe. I also reference an article by the History Channel about a riot at Attica Prison, and that's through the History Channel website. Also reference an article by the Los Angeles Times called New Mexico Prison Riot Left Legacy of Construction and Training. That was published uh, by Sue Major Holmes in 1990. And the textbooks that we referenced are The Devil's Butcher Shop, The New Mexico Prison Uprising by Roger Morris, and The Hate Factory by G. Hilleman. There's also additional information available on Wikipedia, of course. Please support them if you use them for any sources. Uh, They need your money. And if you have some money, you can definitely help them out that way. Uh, There's an article on Vice that talks a little bit about the history 
of the prison riot and the prison itself by Andrew Brennanstuhl. I don't know if I said that correctly. Uh, there's a lot of information on the local news channels as well. And uh, there's this paper that I'm checking out by Mark Colvin from the University of Boulder. Let's get into it. Let's get into okay. it. Okay. Um, this tends to be a very heavy subject matter, so definitely... Yeah, I would, I would say take care of yourself. Um, if, if it gets to be too much for you, then feel free to fast forward. Just be prepared. We'll give you some, some warning ahead of time before things get really graphic so you can skip ahead if you need to. Um, and then hopefully you'll come back and listen to the rest of it. So, all right, go let's, ahead. Let's get started. So let's dive right in. And in order to flesh out a conversation about the Santa Fe riot, we have to see the forest from the trees, so to speak. We need to take a look at the whole picture. And in order to do that, we have to go back a few decades and see how America was handling, or better yet, not handling, the mental health issues in the U.S. So we need to go back to the 70s, the 80s, even the 60s. So John F. Kennedy in 1963 signed the Community Mental Health Act, and that essentially launched the country's system of community mental health centers. In 1980, President Jimmy Carter signed the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980, and that dedicated hundreds of million dollars over four years in grants to expand those community mental health services. So something that wasn't taken into account for Carter's Mental Health Systems Act was the expansion of entitlement systems during the 1970s. So entitlements are your Medicaid, your Social Security income, your Social Security disability, food stamps, housing supplements, all those things. So ideally, it was thought that the expansion of those entitlements would be a safety net for those suffering from severe mental illness. It would basically give them money to live in the community. So it meant that hospitalizations in state-funded uh, mental health institutions um, were de um, decreased drastically. And it meant that it was also harder to get into the mental health facilities that remained. Yeah, I can imagine that because there was so much of a focus on maybe providing self-sufficiency for people with mental health problems that you probably started to see some of the hospital counts in terms of the number of hospitals available decreasing, even though the population of people that actually needed mental health services was probably not decreasing at that time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think that the Jimmy Carter um, Mental Health Systems Act was naive, too. I mean, it was good intentioned. They wanted to expand these community health resources, um, and they thought that these other entitlement programs would really provide a safety net and enough financial resources for those who were like severely mentally ill. Uh, but that just wasn't the case. So there was also assumed that when the severely mentally ill people were returned to the community, that they were going to be able to get their outpatient services through these mental health services and that they were going to have family and friends to care for them using the supplemental income. Um, however, it wasn't really realized that the majority of those residing in mental health facilities had no one in their life to take care of them. So they were largely unmarried, divorced, or widowed. So the time frame leading up to the Santa Fe Penitentiary Riot, mechanisms tasked with addressing mental health were completely disorganized. So there was money focused on expanding financial resources for those living in mental illness, but there was no uniform approach in place to address the mental health issues, and especially those requiring intensive long-term treatment and management. And researcher Gerald Grobe 
wrote in his article, this disarray and lack of any unified structure of insurance coverage or service integration forced many patients with serious mental illnesses to survive in homeless shelters, on the streets, or even in jails and prisons. Another historical footnote for our conversation about the New Mexico State Penitentiary riot was another prison riot that took place nearly a decade earlier, and it had many of the same features. Mm. On September 9th, 1971, over 1,200 of the estimated roughly 2,200 inmates rioted and took control of the Attica prison. I heard of this, yeah. Yeah, so they took 42 staff members hostage and 39 guards and employees were held hostage for four days. And negotiations to end the the siege basically failed. And in a last-ditch effort, the state police ran in, guns blazing, which left 10 hostages and 29 inmates dead. And at the time, the Attica riot was the worst prison riot in U.S. history. Inmates highlighted overcrowding, inhumane conditions, and poor treatment from the guards as the prelude to the violent affair. So this is a good segue into the state of the prison in Santa Fe at the time that all this pressure was building up. To understand that, you probably want to know a little bit about what the Santa Fe Penitentiary was like, or the New Mexico State Penitentiary was like, leading up to this. So this penitentiary was touted in the 50s as a state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line, amazing prison that was going to solve all the problems that they were facing back in the 50s, which were overcrowding, unsanitary conditions, as well as dilapidated buildings and, and things like that. The state was so proud of this new prison that they invited the public to come and like hang out in the prison before they brought all the inmates over. So there were like kids pretending to sleep on the cots and running around in the cells. And they had like a little picnic in the yard. Um, They touted the recreational area, be able to rival any of the best high schools in the state. So it was really seen as this amazing jewel of uh, (laughs) penitentiaries. And as you're going to go into, I think it, it slowly kind of went downhill from there. So <laughs> no longer the summer camp thing. <laughs> so keeping the the reasons for the Attica riot in mind, again, overcrowding, inhumane conditions, poor treatment from the guards. One would think that prison officials would be especially cognizant to these complaints when overseeing a potentially volatile environment like a prison. But Santa Fe penitentiary officials seem to have their heads buried in the desert sand. As the New Mexico Attorney General report highlighted, the Santa Fe riot was not a fluke. There was substantial evidence and other secondary factors to indicate that a riot was inevitable. The Santa Fe prison had once been a modern facility, like Eric said, but it quickly fell into disrepair due to overcrowding. And this was a further exacerbated by unsanitary living conditions. Inmates complained that they were routinely fed spoiled food. For example, inmates told a story that on Thanksgiving, they were intentionally, they felt fed, rotten green turkey. I also read that that led to like some severe uh, sickness spreading through the prison. Like people were just throwing up everywhere and it yeah. was really bad. I mean, I could only imagine vomiting, diarrhea, you have poor plumbing due to the over- overcrowding. I'm sure it was horrible. Disgusting. So not only was there um, an unsanitary living condition, the inmates were also subjected to what was called the snitch system. What is that? 
So the snitch system was where um, inmates would be rewarded for sharing information with the prison administration. It could be information about drug deals, weapons, contraband, anything like that. Um, However, Warden Rodriguez took it to a whole nother level. And it's alleged that if you didn't give the administration what they wanted, you could still be labeled as a snitch anyway and sent to solitary confinement. So it left inmates in an impossible situation. That's a good way to make sure you're not popular. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And to add insult to injury, most of the rehabilitation programs were being cut. So the education programs, um, learning any sort of trade, those were all being axed um, by the administration. So this inevitably left inmates with a lot of time on their hands. And I don't think that's a good combination. No. So according to the Attorney General's report, Quote, the first indication of a possible hostage seizure came from a memorandum regarding dormitory E2 from Dr. Mark Orner, a prison psychologist. And this memo was sent to Superintendent of Correctional Security, Manuel um, Coroneos, on January 2nd, 1980. So Orner allegedly relayed intelligence that he gathered from inmates, stating that inmates were planning to take hostages and that ammunition and homemade firearms were going to be used in a takeover. So again, this was documented in an official memo. Um, Again, according to the Attorney General report, a January 23rd, 1980 memo from Deputy Warden Montoya to Warden Griffin discussed the possibility of a hostage taking by inmates in cell block three. It went on to say that this hostage seizure, seizure was to take place after the evening count. Montoya further states in the memo that a confidential informant had stated that inmates in cell block two were making knives and then distributing them to other inmates to use in a takeover. So in response to the memo, Coroneos, the superintendent, recommended um, basically transferring some inmates out of cell block three for their protection. And even though at least one shift captain had mentioned to his staff that they had received this information about a possible hostage or riot situation, there was no increase in security and um, none of the information really trickled down to other people who may have needed it. Uh, Another alarming factor is that allegedly one week prior to the Santa Fe riot, the warden required guards to read the riot plan that they had. But according to the Attorney General report, only two staff members found the plan and read it. And to add insult to injury, the plan itself highlighted warning signs that indicated a riot is imminent, such as transfer requests, unrest amongst the inmates, all of the warning signs that had been documented in those previous memos. There was also a massive lack of efficient communication. The official memos were not shared with the guards, so many were left in the dark, and there was just a huge failure to connect the dots. Adding to their stressful work environment was their really poor pay, which meant high turnover, which meant that there was probably a lot of inadequate training amongst the guards. Additionally, the guard to inmate ratio was a huge red flag. There was hundreds of inmates per two to three guards, which is a huge disparity. It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So the evening of February 1st, 1980, inmates on cell block E2, and remember that's the cell block that was mentioned in that first memo, were they coming in heavily intoxicated on some homebrew, some hooch. Some toilet wine. Toilet wine. Now, um, for the layperson, hooch is typically made with fermenting fruit, sugar, juices, water, anything that they could get their hands on that would ferment. 
and make a pretty potentially toxic brew. Sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's alleged that during this drunken event, the inmates started planning out their plan to overpower the guards during the next headcount. It's alleged that during this drunken evening, the inmates started to make their plan to overpower the guards during the next headcount. So at 1.30 a.m., shift captain Royball and guard Schmidt and Martinez entered E2 for the headcount. So now typically, this area would be lit in the evening by these blue security lights. So you still had some um, semblance of seeing what was around you and seeing the inmates. But in typical fashion, these blue security lights weren't working. So they were practically working in the dark. Um, and a memo had been submitted to get the lights fixed, citing security concerns, but it never happened. So the inmates light lay in wait, and it was not difficult for them to be able to overpower the three guards. They dragged the guards into the day room. They stripped them of their outfits, their clothing. They beat them. They even urinated on them. One of the inmates took the uniform of Captain Royball and then led roughly about 10 other inmates to go start take, staking their claim on more territory in the prison. So one inmate took the uniform of Captain Royball and led about roughly 10 other inmates to start staking their claim on more territory in the prison. These inmates eventually came upon um, Officer Bigfoot Curry, Juan Bustos, and Victor Gallegos, and Herman Gallegos. All but Curry were easily overpowered. Curry was known for his size, hence the name Bigfoot. He was a big dude. He was able to fight off being jumped by several inmates at a time. And he was able to fend them off for a little bit of time until they started stabbing him, which eventually subdued him. Then these guards were dragged to the same day room where the original hostages were being held. They too were stripped naked and beaten. Okay. So before we get into here, this might be a point where somebody who may not be able to handle some intense violence might want to skip ahead about 30, 45 seconds. Would you agree? I totally agree. Okay. So hopefully you'll come back and join us. Go ahead. So with the guards stripped and contained, the inmates decided to take their rage out on them in the most heinous ways. So allegedly, according to inmates, several of the guards that they captured were known to play mind games with the inmates. For example, they were apparently holding mail. They would use excessive force. They would utilize the snitch system. So these guards were seen as villains by the inmates, and they in turn felt the brunt of all their pent-up rage and diabolical masochism that was fueling the riots. The guards were repeatedly sexually assaulted by the inmates. And then after those sexual assaults occurred, the guards were then penetrated by their own billy clubs. Ugh. Yeah, it's pretty heinous. So one of the key factors that the inmates were able to obtain was the keys. And with the guard keys in hand, some 500 inmates started to spread over the prison to the next cell blocks, opening gates and releasing more inmates as they went. However, some of the inmates didn't want to participate. They, in fact, feared for their lives. So the inmates of Block E1 had barricaded themselves with anything that they could find. They didn't know if they could survive if the rioters were able to penetrate their barricade. Oh, my God. So as the roaming band of inmates started taking more territory, their aim was to get to the control room of the prison. 
And the control room was, was like the, the brain of the prison. It controlled most of the doors, um, most of the communication systems. Um, and at the time, it was being manned by an officer, Lucero. At around 1.57 a.m., Lucero heard an inmate on a two-way radio saying that they had the captain, they were holding him a hostage, and they were demanding a meeting with the state governor, the media, and the former warden, Rodriguez. And if you recall, the former warden, Rodriguez, is the one who had implemented the snitch system. Such a nice guy. Yeah, he was a real winner. (laughs) So... Lucero had some time, and he was able to notify Superintendent Corneros that there was a riot in progress. And Corneros started notifying um, his chain of command about the riot in progress. And at the same time, Lucero was then left to watch helplessly as inmates started to swarm the control center. The control center was encased in glass that was touted as being bulletproof, but this allegedly was not true as evidenced by the glass beginning to shatter from repeated hits from the inmates with pipes and other makeshift weapons. Okay, I'm just going to say something. I love being a New Mexican. Mm -hmm. I love New Mexico. Mm -hmm. But can we please just stop cutting corners on everything? Yes. Like, this was, what, 40 years ago almost? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, let's get it together, New Mexico. Yeah, it's really disappointing, too, because I could only imagine this guard was hopeful that he would be safe in this contained unit, and that clearly was not the case. Can you imagine how horrifying that would be? Yeah, so many people surrounding you. So the inmates then dragged one of the guards in front of the control room, and they showed off their victim to Lucero inside the control center. They said that if if Lucero didn't let them in, they were going to kill the guard. And Lucero's training, as all the guards had been trained, was never to comply with the um, demands of inmates during a riot situation. So he refused to let them in. But they just continued to beat on that glass, and they were getting very close to breaching it before Officer Lucero was rescued by another officer named Officer Sidibaca. And they were able to escape just in time as the rioters were penetrating the control room. But one thing that was really unfortunate about their escape is that they left keys in the control room. So during this time, the uh, on-staff medical team of the infirmary were able to realize that the, the riot was taking place. And they were able to hide themselves and the patients in the infirmary um, from the rioters. But once the control center was taken over, the rioters essentially had access to the entire prison. And this included the records room and the pharmacy. The records room was completely torched by the inmates. Everything was set ablaze. And this was very intentional. They wanted to destroy their records. And this was before our modern electronic systems, obviously. So it was a huge deal. Very effective way to make sure you got rid of those records back then. The pharmacy was raided, and inmates ingested anything they could get their hands on. And it's theorized that a lot of the gruesome behavior that they exhibited could be attributed to them ingesting so many narcotics, opioids, amphetamines, anything they could get their hands on. Yeah, and this might be another point where you might want to fast forward a little bit here if you're squeamish at all, because it gets really bad really fast. Yeah. So the swarm of inmates migrated to the cantina where a lot of food was plundered. And then they went on to the plumbing shop where they were able to obtain more weapons. Specifically, they were able to get a cutting torch, which is a pretty significant development. With more weapons in hand, 
and you could argue more of the intense effects of the drugs taking place, rioters moved on to the educational building. And without keys to open the doors of, of that building, they were able to use their newly acquired cutting tool to gain entry. And inside the educational building was a stowaway guard. Officer Hernandez had been able to hide in there. But once they were able to gain access, he was no longer safe. Officer Hernandez was very new to working at the prison. And luckily, he didn't have much of an impact on the inmates during his short tenure there. So thankfully, his beating was brief compared to the guards who had been captured prior to him. So moving along the way, more inmates from the general population were being released and more inmates were being specifically targeted by this roaming band of inmates. One specific inmate that was being targeted was named Juan Martinez. So it's alleged that he was a paranoid schizophrenic and it's alleged that he was often targeted by other inmates due to his compromised mental state. A rioter armed with a tear gas canister opened his cell, pointed it directly at his head, and fired. <sighs> Apparently, it did kill him instantly, which I guess you could say is the only positive if of something like one, that. If there is one, yeah. Oh, so God. he luckily wasn't subjected to torture if he was killed instantly. Some people were not so lucky. Right. So the rioters decided to set their eyes on those inmates of E1... Um, the unit E1 was a semi-protective unit, and the men in this unit were usually younger, new to the prison, and could not survive in general population. They were usually the targets of sexual assaults or beatings, and as we talked about before, they had barricaded themselves in the cells. And first, rioters tried to convince them to come out, but they refused. Then they tried to smoke them out by setting fires, but no luck there. One rioter decided to stick up for the men of E1 and said that they shouldn't hassle the men of E1 and they should just move on. This guy's name was Joe Madrid, and no good deed goes unpunished. Oh, no. So he's trying to do the right thing and saying, let's just leave these guys alone. But that doesn't go over so well. In return for trying to deter the rioters, he was beaten to a bloody pulp. And once it was clear he was dead, he was strung up from a basketball hoop as a warning to anyone who thought about going against the rioters. Throughout the remainder of the riot, his corpse was further mutilated from dangling from a rope. Ugh. Yeah. It's horrifying. So moving from the semi-segregated unit, the band of butchers, as I'll refer to them, decided to head to the full-on segregation unit where the snitches were held. So an inmate named Archie Martinez was known as the king of snitches, and he was being held in the segregation unit. So Archie got a little bit cocky. He realized they didn't have keys to the unit, so he allegedly was mocking them as they were trying to get access to him. He barricaded himself in his cell, and for a moment, he felt pretty hopeful that he was going to get out of this. But they came back with that cutting torch... And that's when he tried to plead for his life. The drugs, the anger towards the alleged snitch, it was all too great a force to reason with or compromise with. And eventually they broke through and grabbed Archie Martinez, securing him to his cell bars. And again, this is where things get pretty intense. So if you want to step away from this portion, feel free to do so. Mm -hmm. 
So those Saw horror movies really pale in comparison to the torture that Archie endured. He was beaten. He was stabbed. His eyelids were sliced off. Mm. His eyeballs were gouged out. Mm -hmm. Um, Allegedly, one inmate took his eyeballs and told him that he was taking them for memories. No. No. Yeah, it's, it's rough. And he was continuously scorched and burned with the cutting torch. Anytime he would lose consciousness, they would bring him back with smelling salts to continue to endure this heinous torture. Uh, yeah. Eventually, they sliced off his genitals uh-uh. and allegedly shoved them into his mouth as a final insult. Uh-uh. No, I don't like this. Yeah. They used the cutting torch to finish the job, basically, uh-uh. and they burned his entire body. The inmates cut down his body from the restraints and they left his corpse there for everyone to see. And again, it was another warning to anyone who thought of standing in the way of this bloody crusade. By 5 a.m. on Saturday, February 2nd, 1980, police and SWAT teams had arrived. An inmate called Chopper One took lead on communicating to the authorities their list of demands. Chopper One made it clear that if a raid was attempted by authorities, they were going to kill their hostages. Captain Royball was still alive, and he was forced to tell the authorities that the inmates were telling the truth about the threat to kill the hostages. He made it clear that they were not messing around. Rodriguez, the former warden who helped create this powder keg, one could argue, with his snitch system, got on the radio and started to communicate with Chopper One. Although one could argue that Rodriguez was the architect of so many systematic failures, inmates still, for some reason, insisted on speaking with him. He was able to negotiate the the injured inmates' um, release, so the injured inmates were allowed to slowly trickle out of the prison. Amongst them happened to be a disguised prison guard named Herman Gallegos, and luckily he had been hidden by some sympathetic sympathetic inmates who had dressed him in inmates' clothing, even gave him a pipe to carry so he could get out undetected. That was nice. Yeah, lucky for him. <laughs> so eventually the National Guard was on its way, and Rodriguez kept lead communication with Chopper One. Rodriguez wanted to know how many hostages were being held and what their condition was. Chopper One wanted to push past all these little details and get to the negotiations. And um, Chopper One threatened that if they didn't negotiate, the outcome would be worse than Attica. And Attica, being what we referenced earlier, was considered the worst prison riot at the time. So inmates who had barricaded themselves in their units began breaking through the windows with whatever they could find. They wanted to get out so desperately that they were willing to take a chance surrendering to authorities rather being stuck with this murder squad on the prowl inside the prison. And while the murder squad roamed the halls, inmates were being beaten, they were being burned to death, charred bodies were strewn about. Eventually, members of the Aryan Brotherhood observed a man in his cell who began begging for his life. And according to the books we read, the Aryan writers made clear that the only way he could live was if he killed the inmate next to his cell. A severely mentally ill black inmate named Paulina Paul. The inmate complied. He charged into Paulina's cell and attacked him with a butcher knife. However, the white supremacist trolls were not satisfied with this minimalist approach of stabbing with a butcher knife. 
So they pinned Paulina down on the ground and sawed his head off. No. Ugh, I can't imagine. Like, can you imagine being there? And like, ugh. Yeah. I'm sick to my stomach already. Yeah, the, the things people do to each other, the things humans are capable of, it's so awful. So other writers turned their attention to inmates that they considered the worst of the worst. And as you can imagine, these were inmates who were accused of sex offenses against children. One inmate specifically named Jimmy Perrin was um, targeted. So Jimmy Perrin was serving a life sentence for the rape and murder of two little girls and their mother. Inmates grabbed him, tied him up, and took their time torching his body. If again, if at any moment he lost consciousness, he would be brought back with smelling salts, and he was forced to endure this personal hell for quite some time. By Sunday morning, the killings continued. Chopper Wynn continued to make his demands, and one of the demands on his list was to speak to the media about the conditions inside the prison. So several reporters and a cameraman actually volunteered to go into the prison and were able to talk to inmates along with the negotiator. According to um, the Attorney General report, 34 hours after the takeover in Dormitory E2, inmates got the televised news conference that they persistently demanded. Mm. Just after noon Sunday, um, employees of KNME and a cameraman set up an interview with inmate negotiators and inmates. And they were able to see some of the the heinous situations going on inside the prison. By Sunday afternoon, inmates had been roaming inside the prison yard with only blankets to stay warm in the February weather. And after escaping the prison riot, being in the prison yard wasn't that much better considering that there was still assaults taking place in the yard. And they toiled there for several days. More injuries were accumulated. And as the afternoon bled into the evening, the last of the hostages had been released. And after much much hesitation, the National Guard, state police, and the SWAT team were ordered by Governor Gary King to go in and take the prison back. Now, the National Guard, the state police, and the SWAT team were very hesitant because they didn't know what they were walking into. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how many inmates still had control of the prison, what kind of weapons they had access to. Keep in mind, they basically ran the prison at this point and were able to get access to all the guard equipment. Yeah, they had all the keys and everything. Exactly. Um, But Gary Johnson, as governor, said, you need to go in and take the prison back. So the remaining writing inmates radioed to each other that they were going to go out with a blaze of glory. They were not going to be taken alive. All that being said, they were taken alive. They basically surrendered to the SWAT team. So after all is said and done, you have a massive, gruesome, bloody crime scene inside this prison. And you have a prison yard filled with the most volatile inmates some who genuinely just wanted to escape this violence, and some who probably started the violence. National Guard's members who went into the prison compared the inside to combat and scenes that they had seen in Vietnam. A forensic anthropologist and anthropology students had to be brought in to help identify the charred bone fragments from so many of the bodies. Wow. Hatchet marks were left gouged into the concrete where inmates hacked each other to death. And apparently Mm. you can still see these hatchet marks on the concrete. Mm. Police were ordered to secure um, the inmates. 
and they were ordered to secure this massive crime scene. However, in another typical failure, the latter was not clearly conveyed to the National Guard, who unknowingly began removing bodies and clearing the destruction, which left much of the crime scene contaminated. I think, too, like back then, to be fair to the uh, National Guard, there wasn't the level of forensic understanding as there is now. Um, but it is a miss that they did that. that yeah. That, but it happens all the time. Like you hear about crime scenes just getting trampled on because people weren't aware, especially in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, a little bit of understanding, not really, but a little bit. Yeah. And again, in their defense, they were told to go in and restore it. Uh, nobody correctly conveyed to them that they had to document everything. Plus, they're not like the police. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. I mean, these are just people who volunteered, and a lot of them later on shared that they um, suffered their own trauma by being exposed to this gruesome scene. I mean, I feel like you traumatized me today, so... (laughs) Okay, don't send me the therapy bill. (laughs) I got my own problems. (laughs) So injured inmates eventually were transferred to hospitals all over the state. I mean, the amount of injured was too much for Santa Fe as a community to handle. So they really had to start shuttling people all over the state. Um, And then they had to spend a significant amount of time recreating those records that had been destroyed. Wow. I mean, figuring out who had been charged with what, what was their background, And those identified as the leaders of the riot were criminally charged. Um, But since most of them were already serving really long sentences, if not life sentences, another conviction really didn't mean that much. So when it was all said and done, 33 inmates were dead. Thankfully, the hostages, the guards, none of them were murdered. But as you can imagine, they suffered significant physical injuries and significant psychological injuries. Sure, yeah. According to the Attorney General report, on February 22nd, 1980, the New Mexico House passed Bill 275, signed by Governor King, authorizing money to repair the prison, restore services, draft plans for building a new prison, training corrections officers, paying for transferred inmates, and initiating the prosecution of suspected rioters. And it also, the bill also afforded for investigation of the events leading up to the riot. Um, And that's where you got the Attorney General's report, which is very lengthy, but really did a deep dive into everything uh, predating the riot, during the riot, and what happened after the riot. So it's a really um, important resource and important historical document for the state of New Mexico. And if you want to read that report, it will be on the website uh, as soon as this episode launches. Yeah. So what do we have left for the the building itself? I mean, it's still there. Yeah. Um, so I heard that it turned into some sort of tourist attraction and they conduct tours for the public to see the famous state penitentiary where the riot occurred. Um, they've done some other stuff too, right? Yeah. Um, they filmed The Longest Yard there. It's a remake of an old film. Mm-hmm. And according to crews who filmed there, they... Definitely believe that it's significantly haunted and there's a lot of paranormal activity there. Yeah. And um, I think Ghost Hunters went there, the the Travel Channel show. Well, I mean, you know, depending on what you believe, I would definitely think that there would be something. I mean, some residual creepiness, at least, if nothing else. 
Oh, totally. Yeah, I don't want to go. I'm kind of, I would be kind of curious to go. Not to exploit the tragedy, but I'm genuinely interested in seeing the space to kind of think about it, flesh it out more, I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can go. Yeah? I don't know. Organize a True Consequences tour. Hey, that sounds like fun. <laughs> if you're interested, let Eric know. <laughs> TrueConsequences.com. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a, a really horrific stain on the history of New Mexico. Yeah. I mean, so many things went wrong to lead up to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, I don't know how many positive things really came out of it, considering the deaths and the psychological toll it took on people. But um, I think it did remind the state that they needed to invest um, more honestly in their corrections systems. Yeah, yeah. and hopefully we learned our lesson uh, as a state government in terms of making sure this doesn't happen again. But this, I think, became the worst prison riot in the U.S. history, right? Like that's... Right. Even though um, Attica had more deaths because... The, the brutality of the the murders that occurred in the Santa Fe riot, that's why it's considered to be so much more severe. Well, uh, thanks for, thanks for, I don't know. Thanks, I guess. <laughs> thanks for hanging out with me and traumatizing me. Yeah, uh, sorry. It's nice to have somebody else talking to the microphone, not just me. Yeah. For once. It's kind of a nice change. Yeah. But what if I'm not really here? It's all part of your What if it's my voice that I changed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. We'll I'm, find another subject. I'm down for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Lydia. Thank you, Eric. All right. Thanks again for listening to True Consequences. This show is hosted, produced, and written by me, Eric Carter-Landine. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe, New Mexico.